Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter number 1. I'd like to begin reading at the first verse. I appreciate everyone being here tonight. Trust the Lord will bless and speak to your heart this evening. Beginning in verse number 1, the Word of God says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, till the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence." When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. When he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. While they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Now notice verse 11, it's our text tonight. Which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Let's read it once more for emphasis. Which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Let's pray together this evening. Heavenly Father, Lord... My chief heart's desire tonight is that your name would be glorified in our service. Father, that your Son would be high and lifted up in our hearts and minds and in our presence. Lord, I want to ask that you'd have your will and way. And Father, that in the service tonight, through the Holy Ghost, that you would speak to hearts. Lord, I'm thoroughly convinced that everyone from myself down to the last person here needs what we're going to hear tonight from your Word. Father, we need to be oft reminded of your Son's soon return. Now, God, make it real to us through the Holy Ghost. Make it powerful to us through the Holy Ghost. Lord, I'm asking for the unction and power of your Spirit. I recognize that the arm of flesh will fail me every time. It has failed me every time. God, I pray that I not lean upon it tonight. I love you, Lord, and I ask every bit of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I want to preach to you tonight on this same Jesus. The Bible says in verse number 11 that this same Jesus uh, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. I believe we talk a lot about the soon coming of our Lord, but I believe there's very little times that our life does the proper talking on it. Do you know that this is a revolutionary truth? This truth, if we really believe it, it's going to change the way that we live. I believe that was the distinguishing difference between the apostles and between the church of today. I understand that God was doing very many things in the church during the day in which Peter and James and John and Paul lived. But I say that I believe God has a desire to do great things in the church today as well. 
I don't believe God is limited uh, by uh, this uh, world today, this climate today. I don't believe God is limited by a corrupt government. I don't believe that God is limited by a government shutdown. I don't believe that God is limited by a wicked and godless world. I don't think God is limited uh, by the uh, rampant sin that is around us. You see, much of this has always existed in one way or the other. God's able to do things in the church that we live in today. You see, it's not a backslidden world that the, that the Lord's worried about because the world isn't backslidden. They're staying put right where they've always been. It's the church that backslides. It's the church that moves away from God. And I believe one of the distinguishing differences was the men in apostolic times, and I use that term very literally, I believe that they truly and sincerely believed in the soon coming of Jesus Christ. I don't believe it's a fairy tale to them. I don't believe it was just a hopeful truth that's told to deathbed uh, Christians. I, I don't think to them that it was just a, uh, a, a well-wishing thought that they had that one day God would uh, escape them from this world of torment and sin and pain. But I believe it was a reality to them, and I believe that's why they live such different lives. Now, tonight I'm probably not going to tell you anything that you've not heard before, but if I could stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance and cause us to consider once again the second coming of Christ, I believe we'd all be benefited by that. I want to say a word first off about the particulars of Christ's coming. I don't often preach a topical message, but tonight it's going to be one, so we're going to be all over the place. But what are some scriptural characteristics about the second coming of Jesus Christ? Well, I'd preface everything I'm going to say tonight by saying that the second coming of Christ has two separate advents to it. The Bible describes two radically different events that will take place. Uh, no Notice the words that are used there in verse number 11, where it says, This same Jesus. Now, which Jesus was being spoken of here? Now, you might say, well, preacher, there's only one Jesus Christ that's the true Jesus Christ. And I understand that that's true. But as you read the Word of God, you'll find that Christ appears in many different ways. Uh, we find Him as the fourth man in the fire in the book of Daniel. Uh, we find Him as the angel that stops the hand of Abraham in the Old Testament. Uh, we find Him all through the Old Testament in various forms or in various appearances. When you uh, read the different descriptions given about our Lord and Savior uh, in the prophet prophetic books and uh, in various portions of Scripture, sometimes they differ. Uh, they differ depending on what emphasis God wanted to place on which attributes of the Lord were being highlighted in that description. And there's no question that there's two separate uh, pictures or two separate ideals or two separate representations of Jesus Christ that are presented concerning His coming. Uh, the book of First and Second Thessalonians presents to us the truth of Christ's coming as this same Jesus. When Christ ascended in to heaven in the book of Acts chapter number 1. Uh, he ascended as the triumphant Savior, the one had, uh, that had overcome the grave, that had been glorified. But when He left this world, He left in a form and in an appearance that was easily recognizable to those that had known Him. We might say that in some ways He was the meek but triumphant Galilean in this passage. He was the Jesus that had walked and talked with Him. He was the meek and lowly Savior uh, that had gone into the depths of death and had rescued and ransomed your and my souls and eternity. And He had uh, awoken from the grave or resurrected from the grave triumphant 
over death. He had a glorified body, but we might say that he was not appearing in power and in glory. His body certainly had been glorified, but he was still this Galilean, this meek Galilean, the Son of Man and the Son of God, sent for your sins and mine. But in the book of Revelation chapter 19, we have an entirely different picture of Jesus Christ presented to us. We have him presented as the conquering king coming back to this world. He's seen uh, sitting upon a white horse with his vesture dipped in blood, uh, with a name written on his thigh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He is not coming as a meek Galilean, but as a conquering and warrior king. That's who we see him in Revelation chapter 19. So that tells me that there must be two events that are on God's schedule to take place. Now, if you're a Bible student, you've probably studied and read many times, and you understand that the first picture of this same Jesus represents the Christ that will come for His church in the rapture. The one that will come for His bride. The one that will ascend from the heavens and we shall be caught up together with Him in the air. The second is the triumphant King of glory coming to destroy the armies of the Antichrist and to set up His kingdom. Now certainly we could spend much time tonight talking about that second picture of Jesus Christ. I believe that the church needs preaching on the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. But tonight this is not my subject matter. Tonight I want to preach to you on this same Jesus. I want to preach to you on the rapture. I want to preach to you on our gathering together up unto Him. This is the coming that is described in Acts chapter number 1. I had a fellow ask me one time, he said, do you believe uh, that the book of Revelation is literal or do you believe that there are some figurative parts in it? And see, he wanted to hem me into one or hem me into the other. And I said, well, it depends on what you're reading. Uh, of course, it's to be taken literally, but there is some uh, symbolism. There is some uh, figures that are used in the book of Revelation, but I believe that there is a mixture of the two. I believe it's a chronological book. And he asked me, he said, well, if he's coming on a white horse, then how can he also come in the clouds? I said, that's easy. He's doing both. He's doing both. He's coming for His church on the clouds, but He's coming as a king upon a white horse. It's this first coming I want to speak of tonight. Let me say a few words about this first coming that the Bible teaches us. Let me say that first off, the rapture of the church, and I know there's always smart alecks that say, well, you know, preacher, that word rapture isn't found anywhere in the Bible. No, neither is the word trinity, but we believe that, don't we? There's a lot of things that uh, the word that we might use is not found in the Word of God, but the principle and the truth of it is found all through its pages. And about this rapture of the church, I'd say first off that he's coming secretly. Now you say, well, preacher, what do you mean by secretly? I mean that the time and play or the time and the day of his coming is not known to anyone. Listen to what the book of Mark chapter 13, verse 32 says. It says, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the son, but the father. There has always been a fascination with trying to predict the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses have climbed out on a limb so many times it's about bent down to the ground uh, trying to uh, describe a time when the Lord would come back. And you read if you... And I don't encourage you to read through the literature because it's a waste of time. And uh, there's better things we can do with our headspace than that. But if you used to study the history of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, you'd find that all through the 1800s and 1900s, every few years, the watchtower comes out and says, the Lord's going to come back in this year. And then that year comes and that year goes and He's still not come back. 
And they say, well, you know, we got our numbers a little wrong. It's going to be this year. And even a few times they've said, well, spiritually he came back, but not physically he came back. I got a problem with that church because I don't believe that Christ is a spirit. I believe he has a glorified physical body. I don't believe he's coming back spiritually. I believe he is coming back physically for his church, just as he's coming back physically in power and in glory. But there's always been a fascination. I guess it was this past year, maybe the year before, I can't remember when, some nut job out in California decided he had figured out, you know, he had read uh, read in the, the Aztec calendar or something, he had figured out when the Lord was coming back. And uh, it never fails, it always comes and goes, doesn't it? And it's been time and time again, some of you that have just a couple more moons on you than others of us, remember times throughout the 70s when various cults would pop up and they'd say they knew when the end of the world was coming. Those nut jobs would go sell everything they had and stand buck naked in the desert and wait on it to happen. I don't know why they think the Lord's going to take them, uh, come back in the desert, amen? But uh, they'd believe that and they'd think that for whatever reason. There's always been a fascination with trying to pin it down. But you know, if they just read their Bible, they'd know that's all for naught. But a cult doesn't read their Bible. A cult tries to keep people from reading the Bible because they know that the Bible is the thing that will destroy their cult mentality. Uh, soul liberty and individual soul liberty has always been a tenet of Bible Christians and Baptists in particular. And so cults discourage reading the Bible. Catholic Church discourages reading the Bible. Uh, you say, do you believe Catholic Church is a cult? Well, it sure sounds like it in a lot of ways, don't it? But, uh, you know, as I read the Word of God, I find that there's no signification whatsoever in the Bible about when the Lord will return. You say, well, preacher, maybe we just haven't deciphered it. You know, maybe it's in the Bible code. Uh, last I checked, it, it, the Bible ends with a revelation. A revelation. A revelation. It, does, it doesn't end with secrecy. It ends with trying to reveal Jesus Christ to us. And I don't believe that the Bible is a code book. I do believe that there is a measure of numerology, but I don't believe it's a code book in any way, shape, fashion, or form. But people say, well, maybe we just haven't deciphered it. Well, i got a problem with that because of a little phrase that's used here where it says, neither the Son. Now, who's the Son? Well, the Son is Jesus Christ. Well, who's Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus Christ is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. You say, preacher, how is it that Christ is om omniscient and He doesn't know when He's going to return? There's a lot I can't explain to you about that, but I'll tell you what a result of it is. That's that nowhere in this book can you decipher the day nor the hour that our Lord is coming back. Christ said in John chapter number 15, he said, uh, I have uh, called you servants, but henceforth I call you friends. For all things that the Father hath made known unto me, have I made known unto you. You say, what's the short of that, preacher? The short of it is this. If Christ knew, he would have told us. But he doesn't know, so he didn't tell us. And so you can try, I mean, you can tear that book apart, you can rip your concordance in two, you can burn out 50 different calculators, but you're never going to nail down when Christ is coming back. That's what we call imminent, imminent, imminent. I believe that Christ could come back at any moment. But I believe by the same uh, breath, and there's a lot of brethren that would disagree with me. Now, let me preface this by saying, my opinion is that He's coming very soon. It's my opinion. But I believe that imminent, by the very nature of imminent, means that it could be another hundred years, thousand years. If God saw fit, it could be another million years. He'd still be God. He'd still be God. Now, I believe it's coming soon, but I believe it's imminent. I believe it's imminent. It could happen at any moment. It's going to happen secretly. This is not something that the world's going to be privy to, by the way. Uh, the Bible teaches in, I believe it's 1 Thessalonians, that we are not appointed, or 2 Thessalonians, excuse me, chapter 1, that we're not appointed under wrath. You and I, we're not appointed under wrath. But God is going to send a strong delusion over to this world that they would believe a lie. You say, what's going to happen whenever the Christians are raptured out of this world? Uh, this world will concoct a lie to believe something different. 
This world, it's evident. You can look around. I mean, common sense has been abandoned many, many, many years ago, has it not? I mean, it don't take but a little child to understand that you can't spend and spend and spend without going in debt. And it don't take but a little child to understand that you can't spend something that's not yours without taking something from someone else. Amen? I mean, common sense went out the window a long time ago, and we're only a hop and a skip away from this world, believing whatever it has to to reject Bible Christianity. And the world will reject it. Now, I know that the Bible says that the coming of the Son of Man will be as lightning is from the east unto the west. And that's true about His glorious appearing. But the rapture is something that is going to take place like a thief in the night. It's something that's going to take place that this world will find a reason not to believe. You say, how is that, preacher? Well, I don't know. I'm not planning on being here. Somebody say amen right there. I don't plan on knowing what that lie is. I don't want to know what that lie is. But the Bible teaches that they're going to believe that lie. It's a secret when it's going to happen. And it's going to be something that's secret when it takes place. Those that are born again in the church uh, will be caught up together with the Lord when that takes place. But the world will believe a strong delusion. Let me say, secondly, not only is it going to be secretly, but he's coming suddenly. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now listen to this. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist uh, to, or a you know, rocket surgeon or a brain scientist, Brother Ralph. It doesn't take one of those to read the Bible and see that the things that are described surrounding His glorious appearing are not going to happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. There's seven years leading up to the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. The battle of Armageddon will take place when our Lord and Savior comes in power and in glory. And then after our Lord comes in power and in glory, a thousand-year kingdom will be set up on this earth. You couldn't call that a moment or a twinkling of an eye by any stretch of the imagination. But now the rapture, the rapture is going to happen in a moment. In a moment. Twinkling of an eye. heard one old preacher say, uh, you know, what, what is a twinkling of an eye? And we have different ways of measuring it. He said, twinkling of an eye is the time that it takes for a light to turn green and the person behind you to honk at you. Some may say, amen. That's a twinkling of an eye. I'm sure scientists have designated some sort of measurement of time to uh, call a twinkling of an eye. But I would say this, it's faster than you and I could make a decision for Jesus Christ. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. It's not something that's going to be a process. It's something that's going to be an event that takes place. It's not something where people are going to be recruited for it like some sort of national government program. But those that have been washed in the blood of Christ and have accepted Him as their personal Savior will be caught up in that moment. It's going to come secretly and it's going to come suddenly. I like this. I believe it's going to come certainly. 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 There's nothing more certain than the soon coming of Jesus Christ. Nothing more certain. I've heard people say before that there's nothing more certain than death and taxes. I know what they mean by that. That's an old saying. and We use it quite often. I understand it wholeheartedly. But can I say to you that the soon coming of Jesus Christ is more certain than death or taxes? There's plenty of people in this country that don't pay taxes. Uh, there's plenty of people in this country paying more than their fair share in taxes too, by the way. And you might be in one category or the other. I don't know. I don't pay attention to your taxes. But uh, And I'm hoping cheat death. I'm hoping death doesn't, doesn't get its hands upon me. The Bible says we shall not all sleep. 
We shall not all sleep. What does that word sleep mean? Well, lie death is likened to sleep for a believer, for a Christian, just a momentary thing. The Bible says we shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Do you know that this world does not believe in the coming of Jesus Christ? Could I say that much of the professing church rejects the soon coming of Jesus Christ? Could I say that much of the Baptist church in actuality denies the soon coming of Jesus Christ? Anybody that is investing their time in social efforts in a belief that they will evangelize the world or, uh, or save the world or convert the world in its entirety does not believe what the Bible teaches concerning the soon coming of Jesus Christ. I'm all for world missions. I'm all for evangelism. I believe in it. I believe it is the chief work of the church. I believe glorifying Christ is the chief uh, purpose of the church. But I believe that evangelism is the chief work of the church. But let me tell you something, brother. We can send out as many missionaries as there are lost people twice over and again, and we will never convert the whole world because the Bible says that uh, that a perilous time shall come, that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, and that there will be a falling away. This world is not getting better. It's getting worse. And brethren, and that is just more certainty to me that he's coming soon. That's not certainty to me that he's not coming. Some would say, well, you know, preacher, if Christ is coming, how come Christianity is on the decline? And I'd say, we're not on the decline, we're just in the waiting period, amen? <laughs> One of these days we're going to run the whole thing, amen? Our king is, we're just in the waiting period. We're just, this is just the electorals, amen? We're just waiting for our Lord to come back. Uh, but it, it is not a shaking thing to me that this world is getting worse and worse. The Bible teaches it will get worse and worse. Let me say that scoffers are not a new thing. Those that mock and make fun of the Word of God, make fun of the soon coming of Jesus Christ. Church, I know it can be discouraging sometimes. I know when you try to keep a testimony in a public environment, and when you try to witness to others and be a light unto others, and they make fun of you, and they mock you, and they ridicule you, and they make fun of what you believe, and they make fun of how you're different, they make fun of your standards. I know it can be a discouraging thing, but it's nothing new. The Bible says to us in Second Peter chapter 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Now, that, don't that just sound like the world? You've got to see it to believe it. You know, Christianity is the exact opposite. You've got to believe it to see it. They say got to see it to believe. Got to see it. To, they don't have to see evolution to believe that it happened. But they say, got to see it to believe it. They, they don't have, there's a lot of things they don't have to see. Hey, they don't have to see socialism work to believe in it, do they? Show me a model of socialism that's worked in this world. But they don't have to see socialism work to believe in it. But now when it comes to Bible Christianity, they say, show it to me before I'll believe it. Show it to me before I'll believe it. That's nothing new. There's always been scoffers. There were in Noah's time. There are today. There were in Christ's time. There are today. There's always been scoffers. But listen to what the Bible says. I like this in verse number 8 of Second Peter chapter 3. It says, but beloved. Now, he's not talking to the lost world when he says that because they're not accepted in the beloved. He's talking to you and me. And he says, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. That one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is this one day. Now, I've heard some people say, well, that means we try to take the days of uh, the resurrection or the days of creation and this and that and the other. No, because it goes both ways. A day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. You know what that's saying? That's saying that time is no object to God. 
Time is no object to God. God's got things on a timetable, and He's working on His timetable. It may not be what we like or what we expect or what we anticipate or what we prefer, but God's got a timetable. It ain't four days late for Him. He's always on time. He has a timetable He's working by. But it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness. But is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. You know what You know what the skinny of that is? Uh, God's saying here, you know, they're scoffing and they're making fun, but I'm still in charge. And I'm still true. And my, I'm not slack concerning my promise, as some men count slackness. They say I'm being slack. He says I'm being long-suffering. They say that I'm not keeping my promise. I say I've got my own timetable. I promise that I'm coming soon. I would say that he is certainly coming. These are some particulars about his second coming. I'm thankful we know some things about it, don't you? God doesn't have to put us in the light about that. He could keep us in the darkness if he wished. But he's seen fit to reveal some things to us that we not be as those that uh, are in darkness and those that sleep and those that are drunken, but we're uh, in the light, the Bible says. But I'd say a word about the purpose of his coming. There's some things going to happen when he returns. There's some purposes behind what he's doing. You know, I'm interested in some of the things God does because God can do anything he wants. He can do anything he wants. I'll give you an example. When Christ was 12 years old, uh, his parents took him to church. That interests me. Christ could have got there any way he wanted, but he allowed himself to be taken to church. Do you think God's telling us something in that verse? Do you think maybe he's teaching us that little ones need to be brought to church, that that's important? I mean, he could have got there any way he wanted. He could have levitated there. He could have, he could have walked backwards there. He could have teleported. He could have done anything that he wanted to, but he chose to do things a certain way. He had a purpose behind it. God does things in a certain way for a certain reason. What's the purpose of his coming. I'll give you a few things. First off, I would say that the purpose of his coming is that of reunion. Reunion. So that we might be with him and he with us. You know that the purpose in the redemptive plan of God, one of the purposes has been that all things might be reconciled unto himself. Uh, the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians present to us a picture of Jesus Christ bringing all things in unto himself and breaking down the middle walls of partition, bringing all things in unto himself. You say, preacher, that sounds like universalism. No, that's not universalism. That's called God's sovereignty. God's sovereign over this world and he's going to have his will and way. And at the end of the day, no matter what the world says about it, he's going to win out. It's not universalism. There's going to be plenty that reject Jesus Christ that are going to suffer damnation. But for those that have accepted him, one of these days the Lord will bring us together. I completely and wholeheartedly reject the ecumenical movement. I don't think we need to put aside doctrine. I don't think we need to put aside standards so that we might come together for some imagined and invented purpose. But I do believe that one of these days Christ will bring us all together. I do believe that will happen in His time and in His way. And it won't be in this world, but it will be in the world to come. Part of the reason for His coming is that of reunion. I want to read a verse to you, Second Thessalonians 2.1. Listen to what Paul says. He says, Now we beseech you, brethren... By the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him. Can I say that one of the reasons the Lord's coming back is to reunite us bodily with Him. The Lord has a desire to be with us. I mean, you look at the picture of the bride and the bridegroom. and Christ is pictured as the bridegroom and uh, the church is presented as the bride. I, I just have a tendency to believe I did a wedding not too long ago and I've done several weddings. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people at that wedding. And they go for a lot of different reasons. 
there's some people that go because they feel obligated because they know somebody. You know how that is. You've probably gone to a wedding where, of someone that you worked with and you didn't really want to be there, but that was just kind of the way it was. You kind of had to be there and you had to go and you're standing around. You don't know anybody. You're wondering why you're there. You're thinking, boy, I hope they pay attention and notice this. <laughs> and uh, then there's other people that go because that's their friend and they care about them. They want to be there and love and support them. There's some people that go because that's their family and, uh, you know, they care about them and want to be there with them and share this special day. Some people go because there's food. Amen. I think that's the Baptist folk. But uh, there's two people at that wedding that are there only for each other, Brother Ralph. Two people. The bridegroom, you see, he wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the bride. And the bride, she wouldn't be there if it wasn't for that bridegroom. They're only there. For, they love everybody else, you see. But they're really there for each other. That's why they're there. That's why they've showed up. That's what they care about. Could I say to you that one day our bridegroom is coming back. And when he comes back, he's not coming back for the world at large. He's not coming back for religious people. He's not coming back for Baptist people. He's not coming back only for those that profess Him. But those that have been born again and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, those that are the bride of Christ, that are part of His church, that's who He's coming back for. That's who He's interested in gathering to Himself. We're going to be reunited with the Lord, but could I say it's a reunion also with loved ones? Listen to what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I know you've read this many times, but uh, I want to read it to you and give you a little emphasis here. In verse 17, the Bible says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Uh, if you underline in your Bible, it'll comfort you to underline the word together. You see, uh, a lot of times we don't really think about this. Uh, a lot of times we kind of think about the Lord coming and those that are dead in Christ because they're going to rise first. The Lord's going to resurrect and take them up onto heaven. And then you and I that are alive and remain, hope they are anyway. Somebody may shoot me dead before I make it home. Amen. But if I'm alive and remain, then after that I'm going to be caught up. There's no question there is a process to the rising or the resurrection. There's a process to those that are being changed. But the Bible says that we're going to be caught up together with Him. Together. Those that you know, that have loved, that you love, that have died in Jesus Christ, there's coming a reunion day. Death was not the final say. One old preacher said that death is not the period, but the comma. Death is not the finality of the matter. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death has been conquered. Christ reigns victorious over death. And death has no hold upon those that have died in Jesus Christ. If you have a loved one, they may have left your earthly presence and this veil of tears for a short while. But there's a promise from the Word of God that if they knew Jesus Christ, and if you know Jesus Christ, you're going to be reunited with them. Oh, what a day that's going to be when mamas and daddies and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and spouses and all sorts of people are gathered together and reunited one to another in Jesus Christ. My, what a day that will be. You say, well, preacher, uh, what about those that are already in heaven? Well, see, they got to come back for their bodies. Amen? Uh, the Bible says that their bodies will be resurrected and they'll be reunited with their bodies. And so all of the heavenly host will be gathered together with Him in the air. What a reunion day that'll be. But let me give you a second thing. I believe that he's coming back for redemption. You say, whoa, wait a minute now, preacher. I'm already redeemed in Jesus Christ. And if you've been saved by grace, then yes, you are redeemed. And redemption is not a process in the understanding of that word that we typically use. Uh, but could I say that there is a progressive element concerning redemption? 
You say, well, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, I could describe it this way. The Bible says that we are sealed by the Holy Ghost of God, the earnest of our redemption until the day that the purchased product is redeemed, that the purchased person is redeemed. Do you know that we're bought and paid for through Jesus Christ? But there's no question that sin still abounds in this world. And could I say sin still abounds in believers too, sad to say. Uh, That's true of my life at times. I'm sure it's true of your life at times. Uh, We have been redeemed uh, from the punishment of sin, but we many times have not been redeemed from the power of sin, and none of us have been redeemed from the presence of sin. Sin still abounds around us. Salvation is used in the same terminology, and could we put it this way, that we've been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We have been saved from the punishment of sin. If we're yielding to the Holy Ghost, then we're being saved from the power of sin. We were saved from the punishment. We're being saved from the power. And one of these days, we're going to be saved from the presence of sin. Listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews 9.28. The Bible says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. You say, preacher, I'm already saved. Yeah, and I'm already saved too, but we're still looking for the salvation from this world. We've gotten salvation from our sins, but we haven't got salvation from this world yet. We're still in this world, in the torment and trial of this world. But part of the purpose in Christ returning for His church is to take us out of this world that we might be perfect in Him. Let me give you a third thing. I'm in a hurry now. Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 20 says... For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I like how God says that, in case you didn't know who He was talking about. Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. I would say that our Lord is coming for reunion with Himself, with the Lord, and with loved ones. I would say that part of the purpose in His coming is that of redemption, to draw us unto Himself and out of the influence of sin in this world. Uh, But there'd be no sense in the redemption if it wasn't for the renovation that will take place. You say, preacher, I don't like that term renovation. I thought I was going to get a new body. No, I hate to inform you, you won't get a new body, you'll get a changed body. The Bible says this corruptible will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. There in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21, it says, "...shall change our vile bodies to be like unto His glorious body." The Bible teaches that our body will be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. No more sickness, no more pain. Some of you long for that day more than others, and I think I know why. Uh, some of you have more aches and pains. But I think those of us that really are keen upon the spirituality of the matter understand that the greatest renovation that takes place is the eradication of the sin nature when our bodies are changed. You're never going to get rid of the sin nature on this uh, side of eternity. You're never going to be perfect you're never going to be sinless in it. Now, when God sees you, He sees the blood. I'm aware of that. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But in the practicality of the matter, I don't care how good you are, you're not perfect. And I don't care how good I am, I'm not perfect. But thank God that there's coming a day when our bodies will be changed and our sin nature will be crucified and dead and laid down in an empty tomb. Thank God that there's coming a day when our bodies will be changed. 
There's some purposes, but I would say finally there's some preparations for this coming that need to take place. I want to give you three of them real quick. Let me say that there ought to be a preparation in our looking. Listen to what the Bible says in Mark 13. Uh, We read verse 32 earlier, but I want to read to you verse 34 through 37. The Bible says, For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. It ought to change our looking. You say, what do you mean by my looking, my aspirations in life? You you hear people say, set your sights high. Have you ever heard someone say something like that? What are they saying? Your aspirations where you're looking and what you're looking to, your focus and your goals. You know, as Christians, we ought to have different goals than unbelievers. We've missed this in this day that we live in because you know what we've done? We've compartmentalized the spiritual and the secular. I understand there's a measure of compartmentalization that is just intrinsic. There are some things. I mean, I, I don't think, to me, it's secular. You go, you go down to the gas station, buy a corn dog and eat, that's secular activity. There's nothing spiritual about that. That's sec- it's not sinful, but it's secular. And uh, you come to church and you're preaching, praying, shouting, and singing. I hope that that's spiritual. There's nothing secular about that. I understand there's some compartmentalization that takes place. But do you know that as a believer, we ought not compartmentalize. All of us belongs to Jesus Christ. We're pilgrims. We're strangers in this present world. We ought not get accustomed or acclimated to this world that we live in. And a Christian ought to have different aspirations. There's a lot of Christians in this world that are truly washed by the blood of Christ, truly born again, but their greatest aspiration is to buy a big home. Something wrong with that. If we believe Christ could come back at any moment and take us out of this world, don't you think that ought to change our aspirations? Some people believe that their greatest goal in life is that they own a nice car, that they make a lot of money, that they work a nice job, that they have a lot of prominence and a lot of prestige, that they find some, I mean, whatever it may be. There's a lot of temporal goals in this world. Why is it as believers that our greatest goal is not to be pleasing unto our Lord that's coming soon? Why is it that our main goal is not to lay up treasures in heaven where moth does not eat through and where rust does not corrupt and where the thieves do not break through and steal? You know, if we really believe that, it ought to change what we're looking for in this world. I'd ask you this simple question. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? What's your greatest desire in your life? I mean, there's a lot of good desires, but there's only one greatest desire. There's a lot of good things we can have. Do you know that the devil's uh, the devil's big lie and the devil's big deceit is not trading the good uh, for the bad, and it's not trading the best for the worst, but it's trading God's best for the second best? That's what the devil's interested in. He knows he's not going to get you to trade the will of God uh, for full-on sin. At least most people aren't going to make that swap just in a moment. But if he can get you to trade what the true will of God is for what you think will be best and what you want and what is second best, then he'll get you to make that trade every time. You know, the devil's a lot like a used car sale. Did I just say that? I didn't mean that. I, that was a Freudian slip. I don't even believe in, you know, what Freud taught, but that was a Freudian slip. Uh, but, you know, do you know that in a lot of ways? You know how car lots get you? You know how they get you. Some of you know how they get you. They get you by getting you to trade 
and trade and trade and trade. And some of you, you go down to the lot and you buy that brand new car and, and you pay about $6,000 sticker price for that nice air freshener that goes in it. Uh, $6,000 because the second you drive it off that lot, neighbor, I mean, you couldn't, the tires don't even, you, you'd wear more wearing a pair of shoes around during a day than you've worn on those tires and you've lost six, eight, ten thousand dollars of depreciation just because you drove the thing off the lot. Now you do what you wish, but there's a goal and a design behind that. Because when you get tired of it in a month and you turn around and you drive back and say, nah, I don't know about this, let's trade this in. They'll say, well, that's all right, we'll just, we'll just lay the difference on your loan and get you trade a little bit harder and a little bit steeper and a little bit more difficult. And then there's people that trade it in every few years and by the time they're done, they're paying $60,000 for a, you know, for a, a Corolla or something. Amen. Uh, just getting you to keep trading and keep trading and keep trading. You know, that's what the devil does in our lives. He does that in our lives. You have what God desires for us, which is the absolute best. But we trade that for the second best. Then we get bored with that and we think we can't have what God wanted for us. So we trade a little further and a little further and a little further. Before you know it, we're in the gutter because of all of our trading. We ought to have the highest aspirations of anyone in this world. Nothing less than the will of God ought to be enough for a believer. Nothing less than the will of God. It ought to change our looking. Let me say secondly, it ought to change our living. Bible says in 1 John chapter number 3, uh, the Bible says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, uh, for we shall see Him as He is. The Bible says that every man that hath in this hope, this hope in Him purifieth himself even as He is pure. You really believe Christ is coming soon? It's going to change the way you live. It's going to change what you do. Not just your aspirations, but it's going to change what you're willing to do, what you're willing not to do. There's a lot of people in this world that are willing to live in sin because they don't believe they're ever going to answer for it. I mean, that's true. When we do wrong repeatedly, it's because we don't believe we're going to answer for it. Worst thing you can do, and I, I'm no parental expert. I mean, Dr. Spock and Dr. Phil and uh, Dr. Whoever would, uh, would be ashamed if they saw my credentials. But let me say this. I've been around kids enough to know this. Uh, don't threaten them you're going to whip them unless you're going to whip them. You know why? Because they begin to learn real quick whether you mean business or not. And, you know, when you see a kid, and you've seen it in a grocery store just like I have before, where uh, daddy or mama looks at him and says, Now, Junior, don't do that again. I'm going to whip you. And you know what they do? They look him straight in the eye and they do it again. You know why? They know they're not going to be held accountable. And time after time and after time, they're willing to do it. Why? They know they're not going to be held accountable. What does that say about us when we live our lives and live in sin on a regular basis? It tells me we don't believe we're going to be held accountable. If we really believe, and it's a scriptural principle, mark her down, if we really believe in the soon coming of Jesus Christ, it's going to do some purifying in our lives. Let me give you a final thing, and I'm going to hush. I've said that eight times now, so, and I never say it nine. Amen. I always say it eight. There ought to be some preparation in our looking and some preparation in our living. But let me say there ought to be some preparation in our loving. Listen to what the Bible says in 2 Timothy 4, 8. You've read it many times. Uh, in fact, preached on it not too long ago. Uh, Paul writing says that uh, I have fought a good fight. He says the time of my departure is at hand. I'm ready to be offered. I have fought a good fight. I have uh, finished my course. I have kept the faith. Then what does he say? Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. It doesn't say love him at his appearing. It says that love his appearing. Hey, listen, if you ain't got nothing else to rejoice about, you ought to rejoice about the Lord coming back. I mean, it, we ought to love the idea of it. I mean, it, it, I, I see sometimes, I, I'm thankful we don't have a real big problem with this, but, 
But but you see sometimes Christians that can't get excited about anything with the Lord. Everybody's different. Not everybody's going to shout. Not everybody's going to cry. I will say this. You set a grizzly bear after two men. It don't matter whether one's from the north, one's from the south, one's a Republican, one's a Democrat, one was raised by a woman, one was raised by a man. They're both going to scream. Amen. Some urgency elicits a response always. And I believe that truth applies uh, in spirituality too. But everybody's different. I understand that. But it bothers me, people that don't love the Lord and people that don't love His appearing. Well, I mean, that ought to excite us. Listen, if He comes back in our generation, that's going to be something no other generation has got to experience. I mean, that's going to be so remarkable. I mean, to see our Lord come back for His church, to escape death, to be changed in a moment. What a glorious truth. We ought to love that. We We ought to talk about it. We ought to long for it. We ought to preach about it. We ought to sing about it. We ought to pray about it. We ought to talk about it. We ought to brag about it. Not brag about our pride, but brag about the love of the Lord that He's coming back for His church and for His own. We really believe this. It'll change us, I promise you. And it doesn't matter. You say, I believe it changes me some. It'll change you a lot. You say, it changes me a lot. I believe it'll change you more. I believe however much we believe in this, I believe uh, that it is an incremental thing. However much we believe in the Lord's coming back, that's how much it's going to change us. I believe we all need it because I believe we all need to look more for Him, live more for Him, and love Him more.